Before we get started, we have a great offer for podcast listeners. Get electrolytes without the junk or the sugar. DrinkLMNT.com slash Let's Run. For five bucks, you can get an eight-packet sample pack. Sent your door. This is my electrolyte drink of choice. 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. No sugar, no gluten, no dodgy ingredients. Check it out now. DrinkLMNT.com slash Let's Run. Track and field fans, Valentine's Day is almost here. And I know because of COVID-19, you probably can't do much on Sunday. But don't be depressed. Don't be down. Don't worry. I'm gonna put, we're going to put some heat into your life during this podcast over the next hour, hour and a half, as there is so much to talk about. Tom Brady has won yet another Super Bowl. A U.S. high score you had never heard of has run 357 in the mile. The great athlete Moo has done it again. A world under 20 record in the 400 meters. The famed prickly pear invite has come and gone. Someone break up the Virginia Tech men's mid-distance squad as five Hokies broke four minutes in the mile last week. Last night in Leaven, almost four world records almost were broken. All of that and more. Probably most importantly of all, at the end of the show, we're going to get to the bottom of Colleen Quigley and Shelby Hulan don't follow each other on Instagram. So much to talk about. This is going to be an amazing show. Robert Johnson of Let's Run welcoming you here to another great podcast. Yeah, Robert, I'm excited. I mean, you mentioned there is a high schooler we'd never heard of who broke four. He ran 357, breaking Drew Hunter's high school indoor mile record. He has a name. It's Hobbs Kessler. And you're going to learn more about him because he is a guest on this week's podcast. We've got a great interview with him coming up towards the end. But in general, I'm just so excited to talk track with you guys. I mean... Not that I don't enjoy these podcasts every week, but we have so many results. It felt like the most exciting week in track and field we've had for months. So I think it's going to be a great episode. I'm pumped. F you, COVID. This was a great week. I'm all into this Hobbs Kessler kid. I mean, not only did he run a 357 mile, but he got to hang out and watch the Super Bowl with Ronnie Warhurst. I'm sure we'll talk about some of that before we get to our interview with him. But like, what an amazing story this is. I thought that was just all we're going to be t- talking about. And then leaving yesterday was just absolutely unbelievable. And yes, it is Valentine's Day, John. And point of order on last week's podcast, I did not know it was your 30th birthday. And on last week's podcast, we announced for John's birthday that all signups for the let'srun.com slash supporters club were going to go directly to Jonathan Galt's pocket. You would get a free t-shirt, supporters club access to VIP content, exclusive savings and running shoes. And John would get all the cash. But I didn't know, John, it was your 30th birthday. I mean, this is much bigger, much bigger deal. So, John, we're extending this offer. Everyone, it's John's 30th birthday. We're extending this through Valentine's Day because, as Robert pointed out, this Valentine's Day could be lonely for those who are single. We're watching your mental health. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe to support Jonathan Galt and become an exclusive LRC Supporters Club member. And VIP members have already... Learned a lot about Hobbs Kessler because John has written a feature on him and Ron Warhurst. It's available only to the VIP subscribers. John, I think it was one of your best pieces. I loved it. So much 
insight. We're going to share some of that on the podcast at the end with the interview with Hobbs, but great work there, John. Thank you. And thank you, Weldon, for extending the offer. I got to say, though, best birthday present I received, Liverpool nil, Brighton won on my 30th birthday. Brighton going to Anfield and defeating the reigning Premier League champions. It doesn't really get much better than that. Oh, John, yeah. Actually, nobody signed up for the Supporters Club this week, so no money will be coming your way. Oh, did I, what? I, I was told Paul Chalimo signed up. Is this fake news or what? Is Paul Chalimo tweeted out this week that he's a member? Actually, he may not have a burner email account because I haven't seen his email, but the response was great, John. You're going to be very surprised. Or I don't know if you, how surprised you will be. I think now we'll even get more because I'm running a pop-up banner for you. Once I found out it was 30th birthday, I'm like, we're all in. We're all in. We're extending this offer. Well, John, I just, I'm the one that sends out the shirts when the people subscribe and they get their complimentary T-shirt. Olympic trials qualifier. I just went out yesterday. I'm afraid, though, that I may have have offended Des Linden, the world marathon champion that signed up two weeks ago. I sent her a little handwritten note, and I said, Des, I was really thrilled on the podcast last week when everybody said a world marathon, U.S. world marathon major champion had signed up. I was so excited to send the shirt to Galen Rupp. You know, sometimes jokes, the tone of a joke is lost over text and email, so... Des, I, I tried to be funny, but I, I, you're probably listening. I, I didn't mean to be rude. Then I realized after I put it in the mail, the, the tone of the joke may have been lost. So. Des has a pretty good sense of humor, so hopefully she gets the joke. We, you know, if you're offended, Des, this is our consider this our apology. Yeah, I'm offended. I want to punch Robert in the face after saying that, but I want to punch Robert in the face a lot. No. <laughs> uh, okay, Robert, do you want to go to leaving then? Do you want to start there? Okay, guys, enough sponsors, plugs, and self-congratulatory birthday wishes. We've got to get to the action. I think we have to go to leaving. I mean, there's so much. Like, at this time last week, we didn't even know that there was going to be a prickly pear invite. I bet we didn't even know leaving was happening. And now we have these amazing action. But I think we need to begin with the women's world record. Gudef Sagai just ran 353.09 to take over two seconds off Kanzebe Dababa's world record. Unbelievable. But he, even more impressive than the time, did you guys see the splits in this race? It was absurd. I mean, the rabbit went out in 58.97 for the first 400. And Sagai was not hesitating. She went right with the pacemaker. And, I mean, that is ridiculous going out. And Sagai must have been around 59 mid, I think, which, you know, that's sub four mile pace for a woman. It's pretty much unheard of. And then she slows down a little bit in the middle and Tim Hutchings in the commentary is like, oh man, she, she must be tiring, you know, that sort of thing. And I'm looking at the splits. I'm like, oh my God, she's getting faster actually towards the end of the race. From 1,000 to 1,400, she split 60.01. I mean, she still looked pretty strong at the end. And 353.09, I mean, just a phenomenal run. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, the, she had gapped Laura Muir by like 20 meters in the first 600. And Hutchings was like, this is insane. And yet, when it's all said and done, she sets a world record. John, yes, yeah, so she goes out in 60 flat. Then she goes 32-5, 34-4. The rabbit from 600-800 was completely done. 34-4, you think, oh, she's going to slow back down. No, she goes 31-4, 30.6, And then she did slow down a little bit the last 100 and ran 15.72. But I showed those splits, and I made John Kellogg watch it, the replay, um, on YouTube last night, and he's like, she could easily run 351 if she ran even splits. No, no questions asked. He said, 
Well, the other crazy thing, look, this is going to come up because there were so many fast times in this meet. People are going to be asking questions about the shoes. But this, I mean, Gudolf Sagai is an Adidas athlete. And I'm not a shoe expert, but Cal Haldanahy, friend of Let's Run, was asking about the shoes on Twitter. And he got a response to this, uh, you know, Coach Garrett Young. He said he claims the rate the shoes were an Adidas Avanti, standard boost foam, plastic plate, it's been their distance spike for the last few years. So what they're basically saying is these were not super spikes, which that's even crazier to think of if she ran 353. Like I'm assuming Adidas is going to have some sort of super spike that they're going to be introducing before Tokyo. I mean, she might not be done improving. Yeah, that was the best news I heard. Because immediately all these crazy times, I'm like, wow, super spikes. I'm going to have to like, study what shoes everybody's wearing. And the fact I heard she ran this time without a super spike, like there's no doubt that it's completely legitimate. I mean, and well, there's never there's never no doubt that a performance is legitimate. You could have PEDs, that sort of thing. But in terms of the shoe perspective, yeah, okay, anyone could be doping. I always factor that in, but I didn't used to have to worry about what shoes, what springs are they wearing on the track. But I don't know. It's just sort of refreshing to know that somebody could run this fast a female in regular shoes. Well, I think some are going to argue, and we're going to probably debating this the whole podcast. This shows that it's not that all the super shoes, maybe the athletes are just pent up and ready to go. But I still think you're a fool if you don't think the shoes are helping. But, you know, let's talk about what this means for the 1500 as a whole, and particularly for the Americans. I mean, John, in our recap of this meet as a whole, we were like, this meet is a disaster for Evan Jager and Shelby Houlihan. Because, the, you know, we're going to get to the men's 3K where two steeplers broke 730, including one guy who ran 724. That's coming up next. But, you know, I, I had said on this very podcast before, I said, look, when they're on top of their game, Shelby Huan can cannot beat Stefan Hassan. She cannot beat Faith Kipiegun. And she cannot beat Gudov Sagai. I thought Sugai, Sagai was the, the wink leak there. The Ethiopians aren't as familiar at peaking middle distance runners as they are the long distance runners. But after watching this, I mean, I don't see how Houlihan medals in the 1500 unless Hassan is off her game or goes to a different event. Well, Hassan wasn't, I mean, she ran 833, but she got smoked by Len Lim Hailu in the 3000 this meet. So look, I'm not saying Shelby Houlihan can't medal. And I'm also saying, look, Shelby Houlihan was barely, you know, she was pretty close to, Gudolf Sagai at the 2019 Worlds in Doha. And I think Shelby Houlihan, based on what she saw, we saw last year, I think she's a better runner than she was two years ago. So do you, I'm not saying, she, like Shelby Houlihan, if she ran 354 with normal spikes in 2019, could she run 353 or 352 in with super spikes in 2021? I, I don't think that's impossible. So I certainly think Houlihan has a, still has a shot to medal, but this is a discouraging performance. I mean, when you say Laura Muir, a 355 woman, I mean, she ran 359. She ran a British record. She wasn't even in this picture when Sagai finished this race. I mean, it was a dominating performance. Yeah, and one thing I was thinking about as I was driving into work this morning, we've been focused on Jager and Houlihan. But since I'm the world's steeple expert, I soon, well, I've been trying to coach Evan Jager for the last six months. Apparently he hasn't listened. That's why I had to pick up this walleye kid. Finally, some, thank God Wally listens to the podcast. He texted me from Ethiopia. I gave him a couple workouts, and he runs 724. Okay, that's a joke, people. But I was immediately thinking, 
Yet again, folks, proof that Jenny Simpson, Jenny, did you watch this race? You need to move to the steeplechase immediately. Start those hurdle drills again, Jenny, please. I want to see you in the steeple at the 2021 Olympics. It would be an amazing accomplishment to medal in the Olympics in two different events. You can go down in history as a trailblazer. Please do it. Well, one of Robert's all-time worst takes that I thought was dead forever has resurfaced amazingly. Jenny Simpson, four medals in the 1500 at Global Championships, including a world title, is not enough to satisfy this man. Actually, Jenny's probably thinking about this because she's so smart. She's probably thinking, look, Hassan didn't look great, and Shelby's going to run the 5K, so I am actually am going to medal. I'm going to get another bronze medal like I always do. She does have a gold medal as well, so let's just not say she only gets bronzes. She has one gold, two silvers, and a bronze. Like, if she doesn't get a bronze every time. But also, like, the game is changing in women's running. I mean, the times are, we used to think sub-355 was crazy. And the world's last time outdoors, what, Hulahan runs 354, doesn't medal. So that's what you need to do. But just... 353 indoors. I mean, this crushed the old world record. The old world record was two seconds slower. Like, I mean, this wasn't even close. And on the broadcast, Tim Hutchings is like, the pace is suicidal. It's too fast. And the splits weren't even. She did not run this optimally. And she still crushes the record. Just absolutely amazing. These women are just, it's kind of interesting. Like, Shelby keeps raising her game, yet the game keeps changing. Is it going to take a 350? <laughs> Is that what women are just going to start running? It kind of reminds me of the story back in the day when Bob Kennedy was, was running in the mid-1990s. And his whole goal was, I wanted to get in sub-13 minute shape to contend for a gold medal you know, in the Olympics. And then he got there, but then Gabriel Celeste and Coleman and those guys put it down at a whole new level. That being said, you know Kennedy did have the lead with 800 to go in, in, at the Atlanta Olympics, although he didn't end up meddling. But you know, you know, you you people are always getting faster and faster. So you just got to keep maximizing your own performance. And you know, we, John, you briefly mentioned Lim Lim Hailu, the 19-year-old. This is the 2017 World Youth Champion at 1500 meters. She was the world under 20 world record holder indoors at 401 from last year. But this 832, I mean, 832 is not amazingly quick for the super elite 3000s now. But the fact that she beat Hassan, she beat Beatrice Chipkowicz. I mean, Hassan historically doesn't open up real great. So, you know. Not a big fact, but I just think this is another contender for the 1500 medals that are going to be hard. You know, just it's more complicated now if you're someone like Jenny Simpson. Yeah, for people who didn't see the meet, Hailu kind of unheralded coming in. She wins the 3K. Safana San, 1500 10K double world champ, second, 833. Beatrice Chepkovich, the steeplechase star, 834. And this race, I mean, Hailu, if you watch it, she totally could, took control. I mean, it looked to me, Hassan kind of looked out of it. She was getting boxed in. She was just, I mean, she always likes to chill towards the back of a race uh, and then move up to the front. That's not uncommon for her. But once she got there, she just gave up the lead so easily, didn't really care about her positioning at all. And then the last lap, I mean, Hailu just comes from behind. And before they know what's happening, she's got a five meter gap and it's just blowing them away. I think... Robert, you had her at 28-4 for the last lap. I mean, there probably wasn't anything that Hassan could have done to beat that, given how she looked today. But, 
yeah, it was, it was really impressive, but I also was like, just Hassan looked rusty to me. I mean, I think on last week's podcast, we were, we debated who was the biggest favorite for gold in Tokyo. And we were debating whether Beatrice Chepkowicz was the favorite. And Robert's like, she didn't do much last year. Her track times and, you know, weren't that fast and non-steeples. But 834, I think that's pretty solid. You know, like going sub 830s, kind of, I feel like that's the world super class barrier for women's running. But, you know, Emma Coburn's PR for, for 3K is 841. So I think this shows Beatrice is in good enough shape. She's the heavy favorite for Golden Tokyo. I don't agree with that take at all. Her steeplechase for record is 844. She runs 834. That's not good. That's a 10-second gap. Think about Wally. He's running 724 at 34 seconds. You need to be 30 more than 30 seconds ahead of your steeplechase time. To me, this is another mediocre performance for Chip Kowich. It's putting her back in the eight you know, the roughly the nine minute range, which is not unbeatable for the American steeplechasers. So if I'm Coburn, this is another sign that Chepkowicz is not going to be the 844 unbeatable Chepkowicz. This is going to be the roughly 855 to 905 Chepkowicz, you know, that can be beaten. Yeah, John, I think she did run, tw- but back to Lemlin Highly, 28-4. I think we actually, we, we typed it up in the article wrong. It's 29-4. But yes, I did time it as 28-4 for the last 200. But I also, John, I don't agree with your take on, Hassan's race. I thought she ran perfectly, except she just didn't have it. She started off in the back. She moved up to the front. She took the lead with what six or eight hundred to go, and was right there to control the race from the front, like like Mo Farah did. No, and she yet, didn't. She got to the front of the, of the race and just gave it up because she wasn't in shape. So it wasn't like tactics cost her this race. If she was in shape to control it from the front, she put herself in that position. She just couldn't do it and realized, hey, I don't feel like doing it today. But there was nothing tactically wrong with that race. Well, she didn't give up the lead to Hailu, though. She gave it up to Chep Coetch. And she just, I mean, when you get to the front, you shouldn't just let some weak move with three laps to go in an indoor race where positioning is paramount. You know, don't don't just get, let, give it up that easily. Yes, she probably would have gotten blown away on the last lap anyway. But part of that is because she was caught unawares by Hailu just making this such a hard move, it took her an extra beat to respond. And then by the time it came to kick, the race was already over because she was so far back. I don't think she ran a perfect race far from it, but yeah, Hailu was probably winning no matter what. Okay. One more thing on Beatrice Chepkowicz. She ran 822 for 3k last year. So let's not pretend she didn't run fast last year. And that is 12 seconds faster than she ran this year. But like, I think it's sort of incorrect to say like she wasn't fit last year. 822 is vastly superior to what these other women are who steeplechase run for 3k so she's still my big favorite for gold all right can we get to this men's 3000 because this was almost as ridiculous as the women's world record in the 1500 i mean getting at wale a guy who look i he was the diamond league champion in 2019 in the steeplechase it's not like this guy's a, a zero he ran 805 but Come on. Did we expect Getnet Wale to come out here? He, I mean, he smoked Selman Borrega, a 12.43 guy. Like, if you told me Selman Borrega is going to run 7.26.10, which is faster than Jacob Kiplimo ran last year when we were losing our minds about it on the track, Borrega runs 7.26.10, he's going to get destroyed on the last lap? I mean, how the hell did this happen? Well, it happened because Wale ran so incredibly fast. I'm going to share a clip from the race. Here, early in the race, Tim Hutchings talking, talks about 
how untouchable the world record is. The world leads 734 by Bergen. That's World Bergen in Karlsruhe. World record, by the way. An almost inconceivable 724.9 by Daniel Komen in Budapest back in 1998. And then let's take you to the last lap where the world record almost falls. Even second lap they've just dropped in. And he's going away now as Wale. But Eger in second place. I don't think you can get back to him. Germer is finished. Into the final bend. He's really working hard. And look at the way he's pumping with the arms. But Eger is beaten tonight and well beaten by Wale. This is a special performance. Watch the clock. Oh, boy. 724.98. And it all came in the final kilometre. Well, he's just missed the world record. It's the fastest time in the world, of course. But he's a click outside the world record. Get Netwale. Make a note of that name, because the world record is held by one Daniel Komen. And it's been that way since 1998. I mean, John, how did all that happen? It happened because Daniel Komen's world record almost went. 724.98. You know how sick that was? Now, we've got to give out, and Hutchings didn't realize this at the time, Part of it happened because I think the third place from this race, Gurma, who is almost won gold right in the steeplechase. Isn't he the silver medalist? 2019, he was 0.01 behind Conceslas Kipruto in Doha. So we think Kipruto was almost unbeatable. This guy almost beat him. He kicked with like a lap early. And like it was amazing though. He crossed the finish line, but he didn't totally celebrate, but he kept running. But it, you could tell, he, I think he was a little confused because he, I think he thought, I'm not as tired as I should be. But he wasn't feeling fresh, and they started going again. But that kept it going because the splits were, were, were crazy there. I mean, they had a fast next to last 200 and then had to keep going for another lap. But really remarkable stuff. This was one of the most fun races I've watched for a long time because that last 800, the whole thing, I mean, forget about the times. It was just back and forth guys throwing haymakers. Like you said, Goma did miscount laps, which I think actually helped and he still ran 727, which is, again, ridiculous. Four guys under 730. It's never happened before indoors. But there were four lead changes over the final four laps. The final 800 was 153.46. They went 27.24 and then 28.26. That was uh, Wale splits for the last two laps, or leader to leader, I guess. Wale led the for most of the last lap. I mean, it was just really fun. I was, I kept watching these guys take the lead from each other. I'm like, holy crap, they're just going at it. Like, no one cares about, like, going to the way. It, it was awesome. It was a really awesome race, and then the times was sort of a bonus. But I, I don't know. I'll be watching this, re-watching this race for, for months. Yeah, and if you haven't seen the races, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to the YouTube thing. If, one other thing that caught my eye about this race, well, from this meet, actually, that caught, caught my eye was, I mean, you know, like in, in his 3,000, Solomon Brega was 726.10 per second. I mean, we knew he was in shape. Think about what he's done. Three days before this, he ran a 334.1500. But remember, on this podcast, we talked about that crazy Ethiopian meet in middle of January. Remember, he ran the 2758 at like 9,000 feet or 7,000 feet. And do we remember when Sagai ran her 401 or 402 at 7,000 feet? And we did the altitude conversions. And we're like, these altitude conversions have to be off. Maybe the altitude conversions weren't that far off because those altitude conversions showed, wow, these people were in 6'6 shape. And, and now they're backing it up with ridiculous performances, John. But Varega, 
I mean, I know he was a world junior champ back in the day and a world youth champ, but is he going to end up being like kind of like the new Salisi Sahin, the new Mr. Silver? People may not remember who he is. He's a 38-year-old. Isn't he somebody's famous wife, John, husband? He's Tiranesh Tababa's husband. Yeah, but, but back in the day, he actually used to be a great runner, but he was silver 2004 Olympics, 2008 Olympics, 2005 Worlds twice in the 5 and the 10, and cross-country twice. So he's got one, two, three, four, five, six World Silvers. Whereas Borrega, he finishes second in this race. At Worlds, he was second in the 5K. And then if you look at 2019, look at Borrega's 2019 results on, on the circuit. Second, Shanghai. Second, Rome. Second, Lausanne. Second, Worlds. Second here. He runs well, but it's just, God, the top guys are so damn good, it's hard to beat them. I mean, look, if he gets second in Tokyo this summer, that's pretty damn impressive considering you got Cheptegei, Kip Limo, Mukhtar Edris. I mean, it's a very, very tough field this year. We've had this conversation, and I've said before that Mo Farah can't even be considered for the GOAT, but I will change my opinion. Mark it down, February 10th, 2021. If Mo Farah somehow wins gold in the 5 or 10 with these stacked dudes, dude, I'll, I'll just ignore the times and hand him the GOAT title. I mean, how in the hell do you meddle now in the 5 or 10? Once again, you guys don't mention Paul Chalimo, Let's Run.com Supporters Club member. You guys, God damn, guy signs up for our club and you guys can't even mention his name. All right, shall we move on? We have a couple other events in Levin to discuss. Uh, men's 1500. That one, I mean, Jakob Ingerson, when I saw that, I'm like, oh, this, this is going to be the performance of the day. You know, he ran 331. He won by over five seconds. And this was not a bad field. I mean, you've got Lewandowski was second. He... <laughs> was a medalist at 2019 Worlds. Bethwell Bergen has been in good form this year. He tried to go with Ingebrigtsen midway through the race and just died horribly. He round up 10th in 339. Then you've got the world indoor record holder, Samuel Tafera, and then Jakob's brother, Philip, the uh, bronze medalist in 2017 at Outdoor Worlds. They didn't run too well. They were 11th and 12th, and we didn't actually get to see the middle of the race. The director of the broadcast cut away to Gukes Fabrice Zango in the triple jump, but... I mean, Ingebrigtsen, 331.80 indoors. He's less than a second off the world record. And winning, like, I don't know. I can't remember the last time I saw a guy win a world-class 1500 like this by over five seconds. It was dominant. Yeah. You tell me a guy crushes the European record, runs 331, beats this field, which has the world indoor record holder by five seconds. Normally, in some indoor track meet, like, we, we talk about this race for about 10 minutes. And here it's like the fourth thing we're talking about. Just an amazing performance. It shows that Jakob just, he's keeping the ball rolling. He's not afraid of anyone. Oh, it's indoors. Who cares? You know, like this is the equivalent of a four, what, 348 mile. I mean, it's just sick. And the kid is, he's still a kid. Yeah, he's 20. No, he's awesome. He's, he's fearless. And remember two years ago, he went to well cross. Like I think he'd probably been running indoors and he decides i'm going to run the junior race at world cross and he goes up there and he takes on the africans and he you know that was a really hard course and he didn't do too well but he was exhausted afterwards but the fact that he's just willing to run against anyone at any time he's pretty much always in shape and it's just he's such a talent and uh, I, I like his attitude and his, you know he's always chasing these big big goals american runners maybe you want to learn something from him he races all the time he loves to race. He loves to run. That's what John Kellogg talks about. He's like, I just love that guy because that's, he's like, that's me with tons of talent. He's like, some of these guys, 
even some of the guys we coach at Cornell are all Americans. He's like, I don't really love running. I'm just good at it. But he, you can tell he has a joy for the sport. And let's don't forget, guys. I mean, we view Chariot as almost unbeatable. But last year when Chariot ran 328.45, Jacob ran 328.68. He's only a quarter of a second behind. That is true. But do you know their lifetime record against each other, Robert? Timothy Chariot is 11-0 and 0 against Jakob Ingebrigtsen. So, he, you know, Ingebrigtsen, he could start winning, but until he does, I'm going to give that favorite title to Timothy Chariot in the 1500. But here there's such a big age difference. I feel like Ingebrigtsen definitely is in his prime. And I think people's athletic prime, physically, is probably a lot younger than people think, but I think he's still on the upside, whereas Chariot... I assume his best days are behind. I'm not saying he might run faster than in the future than he ever has, but like his physical actual peak has probably already happened. Maybe. He's 20 years old. So let's just not forget that. But also I think in America, we freak out like, I mean, rightfully so Hobbs Kessler runs 357, but Ingebrigtsen's, I think he's changed the, the mindset or he's shown not everyone who's running super fast that 18 years old is overage. Like it's possible. Like, there's no doubting his age. We know it's legit. Even a Western guy at this age can run this fast. So the game's changing. It's changing in the women's events. It's younger and younger kids from all countries now are running fast in the distance races. Well, one point I would make about those, I know that Chariot's older, but in terms of training age, if you're a believer in that, I bet that Jakob's been training at a very high level, probably longer than Chariot. Because remember, he's been training with his brothers since he was about 11 years old. So I, I bet that in terms of training age, they're probably similar. Jakob might even be, quote-unquote, older. But remember, Jakob, he just trains hard. He's not that talented. Or That was a tidbit from another podcast. All right. Uh, one other thing I'll we'll talk about quickly. We almost got a world record in the 60-meter hurdles. Grant Holloway has been on fire. He runs 732. Clean shave. He shaved his head. I'm wondering, do I need to follow Grant Holloway and just shave it all off, guys? I think someone on the message board suggested that. Uh, Yeah, he runs 7.32.02 shy of Colin Jackson's world record. It lowers his own American record, which he tied earlier this year. So Grant Holloway starting out 2021 uh, in terrific form. John, did someone comment on your looks without your permission? I'm sorry for that microaggression. Yeah, this meet was stacked. I want to give a shout out to the organizers. This is during the COVID. There's no fans. I mean, the pole vault was like just absolutely stacked. You had Duplantis. Nielsen was second. Louvinet was third. You know, way back there, Sam Kendrick's eighth. I mean, just like this meet was stacked. I count 16 Americans at this meet in France. And normal Americans are barred from traveling to Europe. So... Big picture, one, it's great to see Americans flying over the world, international track continuing on. Let's just keep this going. We can have big events during COVID. We can have an Olympics, even with travel restrictions. So let's keep this thing going. But in particular, shout out to these people for, I don't know how who funds this thing or what it was, but it was a tremendous track and field meeting. Yeah, actually, I do want to give a shout-out. I, I also want to give, believe it or not, I want to give it a shout-out to USATF because we're going to move now to Hobbs Kessler. It's kind of crazy. There's a three a high school kid that we'd never heard of ran 357, and we've barely talked about it half an hour into the podcast, but that's how stacked that leaving meet was. But the reason I'm creating USATF is 
we called on them like, hey, you guys got to step up. Like Paul Doyle's out here putting half his life savings on the line to hold this meet American Track League series. USATF, they did put in some money to pump up the broadcast. The broadcast was a lot better the last couple of meets. And you guys are looking at me like I'm some shill for USATF here. I'm just, look, we criticize them plenty. I think they stepped up. The broadcast has been way better the last two weeks. And they helped cover some Catholic travel costs. But look, I'm not here to praise them. I'm here to talk about Hobbs Kessler. I don't think USATF deserves any credit for the American track league. They should have been organizing meets like that in the first place. But anyways, I'm glad that when we talk about Hobbs Kessler, I didn't watch the race live. I was getting ready for the Super Bowl. I thought that announcer-wise, I always criticize the announcers. I thought that Otto Bolden and Paul Swanger did a great job on that race. Um, and Otto's insight in the 1500, he's very, he, he, he understands what makes Centrowitz good and Nick Willis good. Their, their tactical acumen is perfect. It was a very good broadcast there on that part. But let's talk about Kessler, John. Were you watching the race live when it happened? Yes. So I was watching it and they mentioned Hobbs Kessler. They're like, oh, a high school kid. I'm like, okay, was, was I supposed to hear about him? And then I kind of realized, no, his official PR is 418. So for 1600 before this race. So I'm like, okay, it's not really my fault that I didn't expect this kid to run well. And then they're like talking about it. It's like, yeah, now Hobbs Kessler is off the back. And so I thought he was one of the, there was a guy who dropped out of the race midway through. He had gotten dropped in the race. And I'm like, oh, that's the high school kid. Like they're running like sub four pace. He's probably going to, that, that makes sense. You know, you see this all the time. Like every year there's at Milrose or New Balance Indoor Grand Prix, you'll get some high school kid running in the pro field and they'll run like four Oh something. You're like, that's normal. They're in high school. And then I realized, no, that's actually not the guy I was thinking. It's the other guy in the tracksmith singlet, the one that Nick Willis was wearing. And then I'm like, Holy crap. He's right. Like they're at the bell. They're going to run. They're at three 30 at the bell. I'm like, he's got a great chance to break four. And then I see them picking it up and he's not really like, you know, he didn't get, he didn't go for the win. Like Takadine Hadeli and Willis were dropping him. But I'm like, He's not just going to break four. Like, he's going to smash four minutes. And then they're like, yeah, it's a high school record. He ran 357.66. It broke Drew Hunter's record. So then I'm like, who the hell is this guy? How haven't I heard about him? And again, he's been doing, you know, this is one of the things. COVID has struck. He didn't have an outdoor track season. So he was running these time trials, pretty impressive time trials in, in Ann Arbor. And, but his official PR was 418. So yeah, I, I would say it's the most unlikely in terms of what we were expecting going in. To see, I was not expecting a sub four, but clearly he had the ability to do it. Yeah, this was just such a shock because the high schoolers these days are just hyped up. They've international, uh, not international, national meets they can go to. I'd never heard of this guy either. So they bring him on for the interview afterwards. And it was called the Tracksmith Mile, and he's in a Tracksmith thing. And Matt Taylor, founder of Tracksmith, went to college with me. And I'm like, wow, like, how did Matt know to get him a singlet? I'm like, well, maybe they just made singlets available, but I'm like, this field only had like, what, six guys in it. And then Nick Willis just starts talking like, yeah, he's barely been training. He trains with me. And the story just kept getting cooler and cooler. And I'm like, it's just really cool. Like that this kid, and this wouldn't have happened without COVID. I mean, he might be breaking four minutes, but there's some positives that can happen in COVID. Like because of COVID, He's done a few workouts with Nick Willis. They don't train all the time, and this comes up in the podcast later. And, John, your excellent article for Supporters Club members. But I think traditionally if he's in school, he probably hasn't done as many workouts with Nick Willis because he's training with his team more often. And the really cool thing to me is, like, 
Ron Warhurst is back. 78-year-old Ronnie Warhurst, who I think probably doesn't get some of the credit he deserves for being a t- tremendous track and field coach, coaches this guy or helps coach him. It's just unbelievable that sort of now, as Nick Willis's career is ending, this young kid's coming forward. I want to put him in perspective, put this performance in perspective. When I went and watched this race, I didn't watch it live, but the way he ran it, like a metronome, like if it was me in that race, I would have been nervous. Like I'm not with the pack. I'm, I'm five meters back. I mean, because high school kids aren't used to being behind people and getting dropped a little bit. There was a small gap at like a thousand meters, you know, second and a half gap, but everyone else slowed down when the rabbit stopped. He just kept running 30 flat. So it reminded me so much of Alan Webb's race when he ran that 353 at mile at pre Webb got out in the back, wasn't concerned about it, but just running his own splits and then just mowed down the field. This guy did the same thing and then just mowed down the, the field in the last 200. And when he finished, he said, I've got more in the tank. He's mad that he didn't go to the well. He felt a lot better than he thought he was. So, you know, big picture. It's naturally to think, what can he do outdoors and can he get Webb's 353 record? I think there's a very good shot that he does get Webb's record. Um, I'm not saying he's definitely doing it, but to close in 27, he's clearly got more in the tank. So I think 356, 355, if everything went perfectly, wouldn't be a stretch. I mean, this race was perfectly set up, though, because it was single file from the start. It was almost like a time trial. It's actually, if you look at those leaving races from last night, those were like time. These were just pure time trials. These things were, all these races were single file from the start. It's almost like a time trial these runners even though it's technically a race so but that's what i thought and you had a quote from nick willis in your article john and i thought his quote nick is a student of the sport i thought it was very well he's like look go back the last 10 20 years how many people have had can equal Hobbs's you know ability in cross country quite a few but how many people can be that good at cross country and this effortless running fast at a, at a quick pace. And Nick Willis said the only people that he thinks that remind him of this are Alan Webb and Matthew Sintowich, which is high praise. This guy doesn't remind me of Webb because Webb was like so intense and was training so high. And he wanted to beat Ritz. Like he was training at a high level. This guy wasn't even running in the summer. He's a rock climber. He gets six at the state meet as a junior in cross country and then decides to dedicate himself to running. So I think it's just fascinating on many levels, John, but I, I think the sky is really good. I think he could break Webb's record and I always want them to stay in college. I, I always said if it was my kid, I would force them to go to college. But in this case, I'm a Ronnie Warhurst fan. Go pro stick it to any of you. I'm tired of any of you getting all the recruits. So stay home, go pro run for Ronnie. Yeah, I don't want to put pressure on the guy saying, like, oh, can he get Webb's record? I mean, obviously, when you run 357 indoors, Webb only ran 359 that year. It's possible. But I do remember, like, in 2016, there was all this pressure. Drew Hunter went out to the pre-classic, and they were like, oh, can he get the record? And he ran 358 at the pre-classic, which is phenomenal for a high school. And people, I think there are some people who kind of viewed it as like, oh, it was a little disappointment he didn't do it. So, you know, we don't want to put super expectations on him. But obviously, he's very talented. I do think, look, I wouldn't be surprised if this is his fastest race because as you uh, as as a high schooler because Robert as you said it was set up perfectly like I know he said he didn't really get going until sort of the last 50 meters but also the the splits until the last lap when he closed in 272 which is very impressive the splits were pretty much perfect 
Uh, there wasn't a lot of traffic to deal with. It was a fast track. And every time, look, every time any runner runs a PR, you're going to be looking like, oh man, I could have done the X, Y, and Z. He goes to run once. He's like, oh, I, I could have, I have more gears. Like, you know, I have more juice left, but runs like, look, your adrenaline's going. We got to calm down. Like, I'm sure you want to go faster. You probably can, but you know, you got to pump the brakes. So I, I don't want to say like, obviously, look, he's very talented. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes faster, but also we got to appreciate a lot of things worked in his favor for this race and he took full advantage. John, but also this is a kid who's only run 408. Coming in, he's like, I want to get the Michigan State record, which is only 403. The 357 is a big jump. So I think this kid has so much potential. It's sort of also interesting how he's very naive, but also he just wants to beat Nick Willis. So he's got this one thing, I just want the state record, which as a pro, like 403, that's not good. He's like, but oh, I really wanted to beat Nick. Like those are very different things because Nick's running, you know, what did you run? 356 high in this one, which I thought was a very good performance was Nick. I'm surprised he actually ran that fast because he hadn't been doing that well indoors. One that shows this track is very fast. The pacing was perfect. I think it's this track is very fast. But I mean, this kid, the other great thing I liked hearing, he runs 30 to 40 miles a week. He's not training that much. And what do I always say? The last thing you should worry about, how fast you run your easy runs. He said he never runs under seven minute pace and a lot of times over eight minutes a mile. So be sure to listen to our Hobbs Kessler thing at the end. There you have it, folks. The mantra of the let's run.com coaching. If you want to be coached by me, go to let's run.com slash coaching. When Nick Willis came to Ithaca to run the Ithaca mile, when I was coaching at Cornell, he stopped by practice the day after, wanted to run with the guys. And we were running like seven thirty pace. He's like, Oh, do the guys normally run this pace? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'm a big proponent of easy on easy days. He's like, oh, this is the first college team I found that I can actually run with on easy days. I'm like, what do you mean you can't get the mission guys to run with you? He goes, no, they all run a minute and a mile faster than me. So he's finally found someone that trains smart. But I do want to change, do want to push back against what I call the fake news a little bit that he only runs 30 to 40 miles a week. And Willis said on the ESPN broadcast he's only been running for 18 months. Come on, people, that's fake news. First of all, the kid's dad ran it in college. Kid's dad is the high school coach. The mother made the Olympic trials in 2012 in the marathon. as a 2.44 marathoner. The mother is actually my age, which is crazy. I could have a kid already running a 3.57 mile. So he comes from a track and field family. Yeah, he wasn't training very hard in the summer. Well, it's at 30 to 40 miles a week, but he's clearly been up in the mid-50s um, if you look at his Strava and stuff. So that's the thing. And one thing that struck me also was the dad in John's article says, oh, you know, I trust Ron – inherently to do the right thing because he's got some experience with world-class runners i can see he said something along the lines of like i i I let him do he does workouts with ron that i would have been afraid to let him do so clearly some of these workouts are harder than what the dad would have given him that's the way i read it so you know i i don't think he's really maxed out in any stretch of the imagination in terms of miles and he's only been really a year-round runner for a little bit over a year but it's not like you know, this is some kid that just had never run 18 months ago. But if you want more details on it, sign up for the VIP. John's got his entire last workout in there, which is pretty interesting. Good stuff, John. Speaking of training smart, Hobbs Kessler needs to get some drink LMNT. The special offer is available to everybody. This is my electrolyte drink of choice. I love this stuff. Comes in very easy packets. This is electrolytes without the junk. Without the sugar, no gluten, no sugar, no dodgy ingredients. Go to drinklmnt.com, and for five bucks, 
you just pay for shipping. You get an eight pack sent to you. This is a no brainer. Try it out. This offer, I think, ends very soon. DrinkLMNT.com slash let's run. All right, shall we move on, guys, to the legendary prickly pear invitational? I know this meet was the one that you guys had on this calendar for uh, for months. Well, John, don't, don't we want to give a shout out to one of my favorite college coaches? Doesn't get any any love. Dave Smith, Oklahoma State. There was a guy in this race that finished right behind Kessler. Juan Diego Castro. The kid's from Costa Rica. I've never heard of any runners coming from Costa Rica. Where the hell did Dave found him? Guy runs 357 as well. Just wanted to give a shout out to Juan Diego Castro. I was a little upset when he hopped in the ESPN picture with the big three. But hey, he did run 357. So hey, it's kind of funny. Wait, he goes to Oklahoma State. I'm confused. Yeah, there's a guy from Oklahoma State that was ahead of Kessler for most of the race, finished fourth, and was really excited about it. And then they had Kessler, the winner of the race, and Willis all posing for a picture, and he hopped in real quick underneath. I mean, he he maybe he just didn't understand the significance, and he's like, hey, I just ran 357. Like, this is awesome. What's the rule? Like, if you get beat by a high schooler, should you not be allowed to celebrate? James Rand and Yale's finest was in this race and got beat by the high schooler. I mean, but the Let's Run Singlet is known for getting beat by Alan Webb when he first broke four so i think if you're in the race you should be allowed to celebrate yeah if you run 357 you got beat by high school uh, you, that's a i'm i'm allowing celebrations in that instance uh the th- the one other thing actually speaking of coaches i just wanted to say this week it was the first time i've been covering track and field for this is my eighth year now it's the first time i'd ever interviewed ron warhurst and i just really enjoyed talking to the guy like he's he's certainly unfiltered he he's gives tells great stories like there was a great anecdote tom brady when he was a senior at michigan asked what they rum warhurst saw him on the golf course they got to talking and rum warhurst you know he said like oh yeah i'm the the cross-country coach here and tom brady called him up asking him to improve his speed they actually met a few times before football practice and ron did a couple things i think he asked him to you know get on his toes a little bit more didn't really work out that well because brady only ran 5.28 for the 40 at the combine but ron was like well you should have seen before i started working for him so that was a that was a pretty fun anecdote i thought from my interview with him john you'd never spoken to ron warhurst i think i had run into him at a meet when one of the meets in boston when willis was there i'd seen him but i hadn't certainly not an on the record interview no wow i mean i'm I said this in the intro. I'm so jealous of. I would love to spend Super Bowl Sunday with Ron Warhurst having pizza, watching the game like Kessler with Willis. He's just like such an interesting character. I mean, I first heard about him through Chris Weir when he's writing Alan Webb's Sub Four book, but he's just like a good dude. He's got these interesting life experiences, and he's down to earth. And like we went out to a wedding in Michigan. This must be like three years ago. I just first met my wife, and. There's like a this guy was a runner for Robert at Cornell, Jimmy Weiner. And next thing I know, we're it's like the day before the wedding, some party. And next thing I know, Ron Warhurst and Nick come to this thing and like make all these runners' days showing up at this engagement party. So pre wedding party. So fun guy. And still a great coach at 78. Technically 77, Weldon. Okay. Anything else on Kessler and the big sub four or should we move on i think we should move on john to the meet that at this time last week we didn't even know was going to be existing the prickly pear invite news of this meet came out on thursday 
We did an emergency podcast on Friday for the subscribers to get you ready for it. And actually, I think that's what we're going to start doing a lot is a quick 15-minute bonus podcast on Fridays to get you ready for weekend action and stuff. You know, gets you have a better idea what's going to be happening that weekend because the fields are released and stuff like that. But, I mean, if it hadn't been for all this other stuff, we'd probably be talking about the prickly pear invite because when it came out, we're like, wow, this is like all the Bowerman Track Club. This is kind of like the Stanford of the indoor season. This is going to be amazing. But now we've almost forgotten about this meet. What do you want to say about it? Well, I feel like for the amount of Americans in this race, I don't know. Is there any national shame for letting two international athletes come in and win those three Ks at the end? Because those were the most stacked races. And you had Gabriella Debuse Stafford. She looked fantastic in pulling away to win that race. I mean, I thought like, I thought Carissa Schweizer would win. And I thought, if anyone could beat her, it would be Stafford because she has run 356 for 1500. Obviously, yeah, obviously, she's in shape. But I was pretty surprised. Schweizer was only third in that race. Colleen Quigley looked terrific. Well, John, and John, John, your take on the Colleen Quigley, you act like she really beat Schweizer by a lot. She nipped her at the line and almost like... My take is she beat her. She beat her in the race. Like, I'm not saying she blew her away. She beat her. She finished first ahead of her. Schweizer ran a better race, in my opinion. I know Cog Quigley beat her. Quigley was perfectly, she came up on the rail. If the rail doesn't open up, she's fourth in that race. You're not talking about it. But you can put a blanket over Quigley, Schweizer, and Cranny. I thought Quigley, I, I almost felt like she ran that race on purpose, like in the back, just wanting to, just to beat those teammates to prove a point, like, hey, I'm leaving you, but I can still beat you. But we'll see what happens in a few months when they're no longer training together and they've all been in Flagstaff together. They've probably been doing workouts together. But yeah, I was a little bit surprised Quigley was second. Good for her. But no, it's not a surprise to me that Debut Stafford's run 356 wins the steep the 3,000 that much. But, but, you know, that wasn't that surprising to me. I think clearly the people to beat, I mean, everybody in the world would say, who's going to win that race? I think every smart person would have said Schweizer or Debut Stafford. Nobody else would have been picked, and one of the two won it. To me, that what was more surprising was the men's 3,000. Although, I don't know if we should have been that surprised. Mark Scott, the Brit, I mean, he's a 1309 guy. He beats a lot of guys from America that hope to make the Olympics in the 5K, but did it have any of these Americans run faster than 1309, John? What's Grant Fisher's PR? Sean McGordy. I mean, Evan Jager has, but Evan Jager does what he always does. He never runs to win. He runs kind of a middling, a middling race for me in the middle. I didn't see what I wanted to see. I didn't want to, I didn't see a desire to like, I should be beating these guys instead of trying to put up a decent performance. You know, I'm still okay. As long as I peak in August, I want to see more from Jager. I want to see a passion to win. I'm not seeing it. Yeah. Evan, I mean, what are you doing, Evan Jager? He's trying to peak in August out here. You should be peaking in February. Prickly pear only comes once a year, Evan. What are you doing? I mean, come on, man. This, this is ridiculous. Like Evan, like he's, he's, well, he's come on the podcast before and I feel like we're going to turn him off by you just, unnecessarily slandering him but no i mean it was a good win by mark scott and one thing i mean mark scott it's interesting coming out of college he was an ncaa champion he won the 10k in 2017 for tulsa but everyone kind of looked at it like well he only won that because edward cheserek was injured like everyone knows cheserek and he admitted that after the race he's like yeah look i I got kind of it was fortunate that ches wasn't running but mark scott has improved dramatically and last year he ran 335 for 1500 which is terrific he ran 1308 last year indoors i mean He's probably going to be on the British Olympic team this year. You know, he, he's he's a good runner. I don't think any of these guys should be like, there's no shame in losing to him, but 
I, I thought 737 for Fisher and McGordy. I mean, if these guys ran that and Joe Klecker, 739, if those guys ran that indoors right now at Milrose, I think people would be fairly satisfied with it. Am I getting jaded? Like, I mean, I guess Jager is world-class in the steeple, but I'm, is the 737 3K anything to get excited about? No, I mean it's not like oh my god they ran seven thirty seven, but it's also, it's it's fine. Like I don't think it's it's not like oh man what a bunch of scrubs they only ran seven thirty seven. The one other thing I will say about this, it kind of just looked to me like Bauman won all four events, so they also won the eight hundreds with Josh Thompson and Sinclair Johnson. Sinclair Johnson actually had a nice um, negative split there to win that race. It was a, pretty much everyone in the race negative split, but she went sixty three four fifty three fifty eight three. Um, that's some good running by her in her Bauman debut, but. What it kind of looked like to me is all of these like Bowman athletes were really ready to go. And some of the other ones, like maybe Morgan McDonald, Klecker 739 is fine, but maybe some of the other athletes in these races didn't quite look as sharp. And I don't know. I, obviously, Bowman's super talented, but I also think they're a little more, more race ready than some of these other athletes. Well, were these other people even planning on racing? Like, I don't know how this meet came about. You know, I think you asked this question on the message board. Like, it's two days before the meet starts and they announce it. Like did other, how long had other people known about this meet? How long had this been in the works? I think it had been in the works for a couple of weeks and they, they didn't want to announce it because there was some uncertainty about the venue, that sort of thing. So I do actually, I, I get that. I, this isn't like Jerry called them up on Monday and said, Hey, we're racing this weekend. Like, do you guys want to invite? I mean, I'm glad that this time Bauman invited other, other athletes and they've got some good fields, but it did seem clear that like Bauman was more ready to go. I've got to give a shout out to my former Cornell runner, David Melly. You can follow him on Twitter, David Likes You. I, I know there was COVID concerns. He was complaining about, you know, this meet being promoted on Thursday before the race starts on Saturday. And uh, Chris Derrick of the Bowman Track Club explained, like, hey, we couldn't announce the high school, local high school was giving it, doing us a favor. We didn't want to announce it beforehand. But David responded on Twitter, I love this. This is this perfect for the year 2021. Surely there's a happy medium between uploading your every waking moment to YouTube and keeping the best meat of the last six months a, se- a secret. I am losing my mind. That's my tweet of the week. I love it because, yeah, it's like, you know, people are, they, they put what they have for breakfast up on YouTube, but we, we, we don't find out the full fields for any of these races until like two or three days before they happen. We can't get, get excited about it. You know, there's a two-week buildup for the Super Bowl but if you're a track and field fan, you're lucky if you have, you know, 24 hours notice before the fields are released. And sometimes we still can't get the results 24 hours after the after the race was over. As good as that leave and meet was last night, the, the, the clocks were stopping at 7.20 and 3.50. So we didn't know what the time was. Like, get the timing right. That would be helpful. No, they didn't have live results either. It was, it was a mess. But wait, one thing, Robert, first of all, did you did you print out David Melly's tweet? You're reading off a piece of paper. Yes, I have my notes. Oh yeah, your secret notes, right? Secret yeah, notes that I don't want you to see. And if I if I put it in the Google Doc, you might be able to log in there, even though this is under a secret Google account. Robert mentioned the Super Bowl, John. I just want to make sure you're okay. I mean, Patriots Nation, you guys are probably hurting. What do you mean? The New England Patriots South affiliate just won the seventh Super Bowl title for the franchise. Okay, John's trying to like latch on to the bandwagon, but. Tom Brady has jilted you guys. Him and Gronk have gone south. They moved on to better things. 
look, the first four, the first three touchdowns in the game were thrown by a former Patriot to former Patriots. Rob Gronkowski had two touchdowns. I was very happy for that. I was yelling at the screen. It was, it was great. And Patriots legend Antonio Brown had a touchdown in this game. I mean, look, they really owe. I, I just view this like it's it's not going to count officially as a Patriots victory, but. You know, obviously they don't win it without the Patriot contributions of some former Patriots. I've just heard conflicting things. I mean, Dave Portnoy, he represents a lot of Patriot fans. He said the day after, he's just very sad. He just didn't know how to feel. I'm happy for Rob Gronkowski. I'm happy for Tom Brady. I wish they were doing this for the Patriots, but I'm happy that they're having success elsewhere. And Super Bowl ratings across the board were down a bit. But in Boston, this was the second most Super Bowl ever. So it just shows. Wait, ahead of the Patriots ones? What? Yep. In terms of what? What metric? That doesn't make it. No, no way. That can't be. Your girlfriend moves on. People can't resist trying to find out what she's up to. Your boyfriend moves on. People want to find out what he's up to. I mean, I guess it's the more interesting thing. Once you get to like nine Super Bowls, people, this, all the storylines are kind of old. So this is a new storyline in the Patriots saga that they're on a different team now. So maybe that's why they're interested. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you're in a Super Bowl every year. People will lose interest, I guess. Speaking of the ratings, I heard a guy on the radio right before the game started. He said, oh, I think it's going to be the, the highest rated Super Bowl ever because there's nothing else to do. And I didn't think that was right because I'm like, no, there's a lot of casual people who go to a party who aren't even football fans. But then, like, if you're some, you know, person that's not into football, whether you're John Kellogg that's into running, doesn't follow football or some, I, I shouldn't use the term housewife in historical sense, but it doesn't follow football. You're not going to turn on the game. So, you know, at home, you're going to watch something else. But back to that 3000 for a minute. Weldon says, acts like 737 is bad. The times were actually faster. 736, 737, 737. That was faster than I thought. That's what I wanted to see. I mean, 735 is Evan Jager. That's 10th all time in U.S. history. So that's pretty quick. But I'm actually was pleased to see this indoor 3000 go so much faster. Why? Because I think the shoes are having an effect of a couple of seconds. And is it shocking to me that the best guy in the world is five seconds per mile faster than Mark Scott? Absolutely not. I would expect the best guy in the world to be five seconds a mile faster than Mark Scott, you know? So to me, these, these results kind of make sense. 736 is like, you know, you're 13 to 13, 10 guys. It's kind of a middling factor on the world scene. And 724, 725, 726 is the type of time you need to be running if you want to get a medal. One other hot take from this meet and all of these meets this weekend. I was shocked at how bad the 800s were. The winning times and like leaving was what, 202 or 201? You had a 201 here in this prickly pear and all this thing. But I see this result for Sinclair Johnson. And it makes me think, my God, she should run the 800 at the Olympic trials and maybe the Olympics. She could win a medal, maybe win the gold medal. Because a 201 with a 58 last lap, you know how good that is? She could run two or three seconds faster than that right now. So she's definitely a 159 shape. She's got no shot of beating these women in the, in the 1500. So Sinclair, you need to go for the 800 in the Olympics. Keep training as a 1500 meter runner. Let's break four. Let's run like 356 this year. But when you line up in the game, Ajay Wilson and he's where is Ajay Wilson? I think she's. I think she must have quit the sport. All it's going to take is like 157, 158 to win a medal in that. You can do that. 800 is your best bet. Did my audio just miss malfunction? Did you 
just suggest that Sinclair Johnson could win the gold medal in the women's 800 this year? Is that what he told us, Weldon? Uh, so honestly, John, he I kind of tune out and getting ready for my next point. I'm like, did he just say that? I know he says outrageous stuff. That's crazy. And Robert's also the one who's always pointed out in a slow 800, who does best? Who has the biggest kicks? He always says it's not the 800 runner who you think, that the 1500 meter runners are better at changing gears. So I don't think anything indicates she can run 157. That's true. Weldon does listen to me. Yes, and a tactical 800 totally benefits the 1500 meter runners. But she smoked the other 1500 meter runners in this race, right, John? Give me the give me second and third. Let's look it up here. Sinclair, 201.70. Okay, she beat Ellie Perrier by 0. .34, 63.4, 58.3. That's pretty darn impressive. Heather McLean, who we know is in good shape, ran 202.28. Beat her by a half second. Corey McGee. Look, do I really think she can win the gold medal? No. But I want you guys to honestly answer this question. Where does she have a better chance of winning the gold Olympic gold medal, the 800 or the 1500? If you're beating RJ Wilson in the 800 or beating somebody like Suvgas, who's the guy, Stefan Hassan, or those types, Faith Kipier gun. 100% the 800, because she has no chance in the 1500. I'm like, maybe she would be a great 800 runner. There's some chance. So uh, you got us in that one. You got us in that one. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. And, and, and unless she can have a reverse Morgan Euseni moment where she gets all these the top stars to run into each other, fall down with a lap to go, and then she can pull a Jenny Simpson and win the gold that she probably didn't deserve, you know, um, it needs to be the 800. You're just going – so after taking a, a machete to Evan Jager about his run, now we're just going to erase Jenny Simpson – Again, like Jay Simpson, first of all, go back to the steeplechase. Oh, yeah, you only won in 2011 because Morgan Eusney fell. Now, while there is like some, you know, obviously that improved her chances, Jay Simpson, I think, has proven herself in the 1500. That's just, this is ridiculous, Robert. No, I love Jenny, but it, it, it's like David Tyree catching that ball in the Super Bowl on his head. The Patriots should have been undefeated that year, John. You'll agree with me. They were the best team ever. What? They were. They got their posture. Their, their their offensive line got mauled in that game. I mean, the Giants did outplay them in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's that that fl- there was a bunch of holding, and the referee uh, Mike Carey screwed the timing up on the Giants' final drive as well. I mean, I'm not bitter or anything, but okay. One other thing, while I'm just making crazy takes in this race, Josh Thompson looked good in 800. I think he's going to make the Olympic team. John Kellogg and I were talking about this. Could this Hobbs guy make the Olympic team in the 1500? I don't think so because Webb could make it back in the day and the U.S. distance running was a lot worse back then. So even this guy's as good as Webb, I don't see him beating the Central West. I don't see him beating of Josh Thompson, whoever else we got in the 1500. Do I get impressed when some Olympic contender runs a 357 mile indoors? No. So it's not, that's not something I would say, oh, that guy has to be on the Olympic team. So no, I don't think that's even a discussion worth having. What I do want to say, Robert, all right, college action here. The Doc Hale Virginia Tech Elite Meet in Blacksburg, Virginia. Now, Robert has said several times on this podcast that his college coaching friend told him, you'd, you'd have to be a fool to try to replace Ben Thomas at Virginia Tech. This guy's the best mid-distance coach in the country. Like, I, I pity the fool who replaces him at Virginia Tech. Well, third-year coach Eric Johannigmeyer seems to be doing okay because five Hokies ran under four minutes in the mile at this meet. Uh, the first one was Diego Serrate. He doesn't have outdoor eligibility, indoor eligibility, so he competed unattached. But then the four other guys from Virginia Tech, Bashir, Mosavel Lowe, Benjamin Nibelink, Ben Fleming, and Antonio Lopez Segura. I mean, it, 
is this does this mean is Ben's is it just a system the system Robert like what do you have praise for Johannes Meyer is he the next Ben Thomas like what what's your take from this result? I'm amazed by it. Was there even a message board thread about this? How many people did it? Five? Five in one race. It's just so common now. No one even talks about it. Remember when Oklahoma State did this a few years ago and it was like big talk. I, I mean, I'm very impressed. Eric, I mean, he, it sounds like he was a Ben Thomas disciple, like he was a volunteer coach on the team. It's impressive. Very impressive. So you learn from a master, you become a master. Yeah, I mean, it's, Ben Thomas is doing uh, just fine now in Eugene right now with that stellar group he's got. But uh, another college result, Robert, that, go ahead. Well, that's why I'm now – I'm always up for the little guy. So I don't – I'm tired of all the recruits going – I used to be really – I used to root against Oregon because they got all the recruits. In particular, they got all the grad transfers from the Ivy League and stuff. It's just not fair. And and then – so everyone's going to Oregon. Then everyone started going to NAU, so I don't want them all going to NAU. That's why I'm urging this, this young guy, Hops, to go pro. And now I don't want everyone going to Washington. Washington seemed to be getting everyone. So now I'm actually rooting for her again, again. Now I'm going to root for Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech is my new school to dominate. Yeah, it seems like the three schools you don't like uh, that are on your shit list are Washington, Notre Dame, and NAU. And what do they all have in common? They have a coach younger than Robert finding success and excelling in recruiting. So that's really what pisses Robert off. No, it's just that those are the schools that you're always pumping up. I'm not pumping them up. They have good athletes who run good performances. So I don't understand why that's viewed as like, I'm pumping their their tires there. On a serious coaching note, this reminds me of something, John. Jeff Hollibo had a great article on Hobbs Kessler in track and field news. And there was a quote in there that really drove me nuts. And it was from Mike Kessler, Hobbs' dad. And here it is. Ron is still super involved, Ron Warhurst, and still has the magic. And the good news is that we'll be handing him off to the new guy, Northern Arizona's Mike Smith, who also has the secret. That quote infuriated me. Like, the coach doesn't make the athlete. I think John Kellogg and I are amazing coaches. I think we are a huge part of the success of Cornell. But it's like it's like a chef. You can only do so much with your ingredients. You can... You, you can make a damn good meal and there's a number of different ways to make a damn good meal, but it's not like somebody can make chicken taste 20 times better than anybody else. So you would think that somebody who ran in college would know that. I mean, Robert, but like, let's not underestimate the success that Mike Smith had. He's done a tremendous job at NAU. I guess fine. If you want to be a skeptic, you could argue Eric Hines won the first <laughs> title at NAU before him, but like, Everything now NAU touches is like turning golden. So the secret is simple. If you're a new coach, John, I don't know. Does the new guy at Dartmouth listen to this? He's coming up from the D3 rakes. The secret is simple. You need to know how to coaching. You need to know how to get people to peak. You need to get people improved. But the secret is simple is call it in college coaching. Recruit, recruit, recruit. End of story. Okay. One more college result. I wanted to go to was a thing Mo because th- this is ridiculous. Like she's already run 125 80, which is the collegiate record in the 600 earlier this year. It's two seconds off her American record in the 600. She's run 201.07. She almost broke the record collegiate record in the 800. And then last weekend she runs 50.52. This was, you know, remember she split 50.03, I believe on the 400, uh, the four by four a few weeks ago. Now she runs 50.52 in the open 400. That's a world under 20 record. Now, some asterisks there because Sydney McLaughlin 
Copeland ran 50.36. It wasn't ratified, but I'm just, I'm blown away a by how much she's running recently B by how well she's running and C what event does she, does she do? Like, should she consider moving to the 400 or she should, should she stay in the 800? Yeah, John, it's crazy. Cause everyone just assumed she was an 800 runner even though her best success was at 600. She hasn't run as well at 800 as she has the shorter distances. And this run indicates she could be world-class at 400. You guys didn't know about this, but this leads us to the email of the week coming from Austin, Texas, by a supporters club member, Thomas Baginski. The email was very short. Can Ethan, can a thing Mo double in Tokyo? What do you think? And I was like, What? Put her on one team first. And I'm like, wow, like this guy's all in. But it's not crazy to think, right, that she could make the Tokyo team in either one of these events. And I've never really thought about someone doing the 400, 800 double. So someone checked the schedule. So the schedule, I mean, at the Olympics itself, it's, we graded it as difficult, but not possible. You would have to do, the problem is, uh, the first round of the 400 is on the day of the 800 final, but otherwise it's fairly spread out because you've got 800 prelims day one and day two, the final on day five, then 400, you've got prelims morning of day five, then the semis on day six and the final on day eight. But it's interesting. Like, look, I don't think she's going to make it in the 400. I do think she has a, she's got a shot in the 800 if she continues to improve. Uh, because remember, I mean, she beat Raven Rogers two years ago, and then later that year, Raven Rogers, this was at USA's indoors, later that year, Raven Rogers wins the silver medal at Worlds. So do I think she can make the team? Yes. But, and the, the other thing is the 400, if you remember a couple of years ago, really wasn't that strong. The winning time at USA's was 50.21. For, third place was Waddling Jonathan's 50.44. And I think Mo has run 50.52 indoors. It's definitely easier to run faster outdoors. I guess it's not to- it's not totally insane, but I think it's quite unlikely she would be a contender in the 400. I do think she could make the 800 team. Doubling, uh, I wouldn't advise it for an 18-year-old. Am I the only one that's going to be a little bit negative here? I mean, it's amazing. She's doing amazing, but I'm not convinced she's going to be running faster in June or July whenever she needs to be. In 2019, she ran that 123.600. She ran 201 low. She'd run 201 low again. I want to see a faster 800. I actually think her, this is crazy because I don't tell her to train. I think she should keep training the way she is now, but she might have a better bet in the 400, particularly if you want to make the Olympics. I think she's got to improve in the 800 to at least by two seconds. So I think there's a good chance you could make the four by one of these 400s or the mixed re- gender relay or something easily on a relay member at, 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 on that one. On that. In the 400. I thought Robert misspoke originally when he said mixed gender relay. I'm like, wait, tra- like with all this gender stuff these days, it's like mixed gender, like what? And then I realized, oh, wait, there's a relay. It's called mixed gender relay. You have two women, two men. So making the team as a 400 meter runner is easier now if you want to make a relay because you now have two events to try to make, two relays to try to make. All right, guys, I want to get to my email of the week. Again, I've confessed I'm not great at email, so if you want to reach me, just pick up the phone, 
Call 844-LET'S-RUN-844-538-7786. Or you can email the show at pod at let'srun.com. That'll go to Walden's email. He'll better checking to me. I actually got this email in November, John. I just saw it recently, though. It's from Coach Gary Brimmer. He had an athlete do a two-by-two-mile workout, and he wanted to try out the new Vaporflies. So the athlete did the first two miles in the Brooks Hyperion 2 and the next two miles in the Vaporflies. In the standard flats, the athlete ran 631 per mile at an average heart rate of 166. In the Vaporflies, they ran seven seconds per mile faster, 624, and their heart rate dropped by six beats per minute, 160 beats per minute. Their stride length went up by 0.04 meters from 1.20 to 1.24. Not scientific, but confirmed what we already know is what they said. Well, this isn't confirmed. This is what I thought happened. This, to me, is shocking. You run seven seconds per mile at a less at an easier pace, at an easier heart rate. So, again, shoe execs, if your shoe can beat the Vaporfly, email it to me. I've got an update on my guy that's going to be running, making his marathon debut. He sent us a workout, and John Kellogg said, oh, my God. He's like, five-minute pace is a joke for this guy until he runs out of fuel. He's like, he can easily run 209 as long as he wants until he runs out of fuel. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to run 209. And he has picked up an injury, so we've, we've had to delay the debut from March till April. But, sure, exactly. this is your chance to, to embarrass the Vaporfly. We're going to test these out in practice. Email me, Robert at Let's Run. Robert at Let's Run. Put Vaporfly in the subject letter so I, so I do see it one shoe exec has sent me the shoes thank you very much wow we're not allowed to say the company robert no all right well that, let's hope that uh starts an avalanche i'm impressed i'm impressed i didn't i didn't know uh i i was skeptical that your approach would work but it's starting to pay dividends robert okay robert threw something out there earlier we've hinted at it in another podcast but people seem to be running very fast during the COVID era. And it's clearly not just the shoes. So what do we think is going on? Or do we just think people are starved for meats? There's, you know, like, I don't know, there's a variety of things, right? Like they could just be just training. So when they race, they're more ready to go. They're not as tired or they're like, there aren't many opportunities to race. So they're just like, hell, I got to go for it. Or Robert threat, people aren't partying. What do you guys, combination of the above? Yeah, most of the time it's a combination, but I would say, yes, you get dedicated training blocks. Um, a lot of times you just focus in on training, and then finally when you get to race, you're you're able to unleash. Uh, I would say, and then when you are re- finally ready to race, you, you don't want to go out and waste that. Waste it, you know? You, you get, hey, okay, now it's my time to shine. I want to show what I've been working on. Uh, I think the shoes certainly play a role. I think it would be silly to think otherwise. And especially like last year, you know, we just had a dearth of, you didn't have people peaking for the Olympics. So they peaked for whatever they could do. Like, you know, Carsten Warholm just went out and ripped like fast 400 hurdles in the Diamond League for a few weeks. And, you know, Donovan Brazier goes to Monaco and runs 143 and guy doesn't peak for the Olympics. He peaks for Monaco. So I think that's part of it too. There is, look, there's a select suggestion I've seen several people on Twitter and the message boards make that, there is less drug testing during the pandemic, and this is allowing people to make gains. I'm look. To, I'm, I think it would be naive to say that this isn't a possibility, but I do think it's. If I had to guess, I think it's the other factors are a bigger contributor than people just be, being able to dope with impunity. 
the esteemed Malcolm Gladwell, when he first came on the podcast, so it was like the first thing he said. Talked about COVID era doping regulations. So that is a popular opinion. Robert threw it, I think, on last week's podcast that athletes aren't partying. Did you guys see the that the UNC basketball game versus Miami, I think yesterday was postponed? Oh, I saw this story and it drove me nuts. I I couldn't believe that. So I'll tell people what happened, my understanding. UNC played the arch rival Duke in basketball. Duke sucks at basketball this year. UNC beat them. So the guys after the game have a party in the dorm room. Someone films a video of them dancing to some music. They're not wearing masks. And the UNC student newspaper totally snitched them out and publishes a story about how the guys are partying without a mask on. I could not believe that a, that a newspaper thought this was their job to do. I mean, I, I guess you're saying that they're putting other people at risk, but aren't people allowed to have a private life? I mean, what if, if they showed a video of two guys having sex without a mask on? W- would that be appropriate? I mean, hell no, it wouldn't be. People would say, so but the fact that they're drinking alcohol or whatever, dancing, they only, I didn't even see any alcohol. That's appropriate. I could not believe the student newspaper did it. And then as a result, it comes out and they have to cancel the game. Well, no comment from John. I just, I don't know. This story doesn't really interest me. Of course there's parties. Kids are going to party. And uh, I don't know. I think the newspaper should have just kept this one quiet. But you could say, oh, it's in the public interest. They're not supposed to be partying. And Robert, these colleges these days, I think a lot of journalists feel like it's their job to like get you doing something. You know, like you find some old tweets that somebody said that wasn't inappropriate or could be interpreted as inappropriate. Breaking some regulation. I read this thing in Cal Berkeley. Students on, on the campus essentially are not allowed to leave their dorm now for two weeks, except to eat and maybe go to the doctor. You're not even allowed to go out and exercise on your own. Like, what the hell? That is not healthy. You're paying Cal Berkeley tens of thousands of dollars a year for that? Are you effing kidding me? But colleges are, you know, obviously you're worried about community spread and that sort of stuff. But I've, these... I'd be more worried about the non-basketball players who are at the party getting tested. But, you know, COVID for most of these, there's a reason most of the people you see partying are in their 20s and shit because COVID for these people, the vast majority, it's not a huge concern. It's whether they infect their parents or grandparents. Okay, is the COVID segment done? You guys know I don't really care when you talk about this stuff. I'd rather focus on running, but anything else? Because I there is a big trap meet this week in the United States, maybe the biggest indoor trap meet of the season. I kind of want to talk about it. I don't think we have time to do a full preview. We're getting close to an hour and a half when we add in the Hobbs interview. I think we can briefly talk about it. And then on Friday, I want to start doing a 15-minute Friday bonus podcast for the VIP subscribers. So after you talk to the interviews, maybe we can have one of the people from the pre-meet press conference on the podcast on Friday. But yes, John, Let's get it off your chest because John is already critical of this meet. It hasn't even happened. The biggest track meet of the U.S. indoor season, and John is going to rip it. Go ahead, John. The floor is yours. Well, look, no. Th- first of all, I will say there are some good races. I'm excited. Noah Lyles versus Trayvon Brimmel in the 60. That's going to be good. We've got Centro, Angles, and Whiteman in the 1500. There are good races. I'm excited for this meet. Wait, wait. But- sit right there. This is amazing. Let's get excited about this. Yeah, I am excited. Noah Lyles. And Trevon Bermel, that's like Bolt versus Gatlin almost. I mean, I know no one's Bolt, but that's a pretty big matchup. 
You've got Centrowitz, the reigning Olympic gold medal. We've been wondering what he's been doing. He's going to race white men and who? Ingles? This is supposed to be a European record attempt by white men, although I heard he might be hurt and not be into the race. But this is big. So celebrate that. Now get to your negativity. I am. I want it. Like, look, I don't want to say like, oh, man, the boycott this meet. It's stupid. Like, you know, I am excited for the meet. I think it's going to be a great one. That said, what is the one thing I've been clamoring about for weeks on this podcast? Since Bryce Hopple ran 144, I said, we got to see Donovan Brazier versus Bryce Hopple this year. Now, we don't know if there's going to be an Olympics. What we do know, Bryce Hopple is in shape right now. Donovan Brazier, he's pretty much always in shape, right? They Two weeks ago at the American Track League, they were entered in different events. Brazier was entered to run the 600. Hopple was entered to run the 800. Brazier had to withdraw due to COVID concerns. This meet, they are entered in different events. Brazier is running the 800. Bryce Hopple is running the 1,000. And then two weeks from now, at the Texas Qualifier in Austin, they are running different events. Donovan Brazier is in the 1,500. Bryce Hopple is in the 800. I'm actually I'm going to give him a pass on that one because... Brazier's facing Centro. I think that's in Jager in the 1500. I think that'll be great. But we have the world champion, American record holder in the 800. We have arguably the number two guy in the event right now. Like you can make a case the two best 800 runners in the world right now are Americans. And they are racing at the same meets and they're not going to race at all this season. I mean, come on. We don't have a U.S. championships. We might not have an Olympics. And they they run it. One's running the eight hundred. One's running the thousand. How is this not bad for the sport? Please defend this, Robert. I always say, what about the sport? But the problem is, we don't have a commissioner. We don't have anyone that's in charge of their salaries that can force them to do it. If you would think, actually, they both share the same agent, Mark Wetmore, who is the meat promoter for this meat. So if anyone would want them to be in, to promote this meat and have them in this big clash, it would be Mark Wetmore. But this is the problem with the sport. It doesn't really matter, probably to Mark even. Because he can still promote this meet as having Donovan Brazier and Bryce Hopple and average fans say, like, oh, those are big names. I'm going to go to the meet. I know there's no fans this year. But, John, it's my understanding that the way this came about, it wasn't like they were docking each other. Hopple all along said, I want to run a fast thousand. Mark said months ago, okay, great. We're going to put one up in our meet. That is correct. They, look, I'm not accusing them of dodging each other. I spoke to Mark, and I I really don't think that's the, that he said they're not dodging each other. I don't believe they're dodging each other. Let me jump in here. Of course they're dodging each other. What do you mean? They created an event so they don't have to race each other. That's called the dodge. Well, I mean, the thousand was always on the schedule. Bra- essentially, like Brazier doesn't really. He's not really. A th- he's more of a 600, 800 guy. I mean, could he'd step up to the thousand? I think he. He'd probably get beat. I'd like to see him do it, but... The thousand is set up so guys don't have to race each other. Come on. Well, what I will say is, look, and the other thing is, this meet has a history of doing this sort of thing. We had two times, in 2008 and 2012, there was a 3,000 and a two-mile, so that Tiranesh Dababa and Miserat Defar didn't have to race each other at this meet. In 2019, they had a 500. Sydney McLaughlin faced a joke of a field, so that she didn't have to run the 300 against the top pros. I mean, yes. there is a pattern here. John, you're right. You bring that in. I, I was kind of defending me, but I can't anymore. They, they've done this too many times in the past. I love Mark Wetmore. I think he does a great job with the meet. He used to run the New York Diamond League as well. He's a great agent. The, the Torres, Torres works for him. Great, great people, but it's kind of absurd. I mean, it's just a problem with our sport. Like, 
can't we get them to race? I was defending it because I thought, okay, Hoppel wants to run a thousand and Brazier's not really a thousand guy. But you told me Brazier's running a 1500 in a few weeks. I think Brazier, I don't know. I don't think there's anybody in America that can beat him in the 800. I don't think there's anyone in America that can beat him in the thousand. And I don't think there's anybody in America that can beat him in the 1500 either. Yeah. So, you know, again, I don't like like just crapping on our sport. I just want to see the best guys race and, that's not happening this season. Well, I think that's an issue with track and field, right? There's Joe. Yeah, it's, it's easy to put on a meet. It's very easy to put on different events and people can often rightfully so act in their own self-interest. And sometimes that isn't perfectly best for the sport, but it sounds like this is a tremendous meet. Bromel versus Lyles in the 60. What else were you guys saying? I'm not, we got I Jake Whiteman, Like you, you spoke to Wetmore. I'm still not sure media is alive. I've sent a couple emails. I haven't heard back, but I haven't really made much effort. But now I realize also on the weekends, I have a nine-month-old at home and sort of just going away for six hours or ten hours isn't what it once was. So I might need to pre-approve this one with the wife. Uh, I hadn't really thought about this. I just kind of figured by now I would have heard back from the media whether media will actually be allowed in person. They sent an email saying that they will not be allowed in person. Well done. So I don't know if you're on the list or whatever, but I signed up for a credential. So that's the, they're not going to have people in person there for media. But what I will say, yeah, I'm not blaming all of this on Bryce Hopple or Donovan Brazier or Mark Wetmore. This isn't like, they're not the only people where this sort of thing happens. But I do think, you know, we saw for years um, that Justin Gatlin and Usain Bolt refused to race each other on the Diamond League circuit. And, you know, it happens in other events too. I just think, this is an opportunity that's being missed. And I, I feel bad for the sport, the fans of the sport. But so, but, it, but it's kind of ironic because this Mark goes to all this trouble to put on this meet and he gets criticized. And yet you praise USATF for, 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 spending, for, send, for sending a five or $10,000 check to the Man American Track League to, to send a couple of, of announcers there. I mean, and we, are we going to praise the Bowman Track Club for never racing in big meets, but they put on their own time trials. So that's a good thing. Like, I don't know. Like, it's just inherent to the sport. At this point, there's not much that can be done about it, unfortunately. Okay, guys. We need to get to the Kessler interview. But before we do, I think I owe an apology ahead of time. Can you like a proactive apology before you're even technically wrong? But it looks like I'm going to be apologizing to the Iowa men's track team. I was mad they didn't just walk some people on last week's podcast at the Big Ten meet and at least record a team score. But then I can't say that if all these cross-country teams are just going to give up on track. John wrote an article this week for the VIP subscribers on the Oregon track and field team, Cooper Tier, and how good those guys are. Ben Thomas. It was a great article, but they said they might do cross-country. If they don't send their team at least to the cross-country conference meet, then everybody else is off the hook for just giving up on their sport. So that's the problem with the sport. We're talking about it. And these pro track meets, people can skip each other. What happens in the colleges? Some teams just give up on track, don't try on track. Some teams give up on cross country. And I don't know what the solution to it is. But anyways, let's focus on the positive. The 17-year-old kid just ran 357 in the mile. Jonathan Gall talked to him earlier this week. And now you get to hear the part of that interview. But don't forget, VIP subscribers, on Friday we're going to give you a bonus podcast where we get you ready for the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix. Hello. Hey, Hogs. This is Jonathan Gold from Letron.com. Uh, congratulations, man. That was, I mean, I, I still can't really believe it, but that was, that was incredible. Congrats. Thank you. It's good to meet you. Well, let's start with the race yesterday, 357.56. 
Coming in, what were your expectations? Were you thinking you could break four and break the national record? Um, I, I, I don't know. I kind of went into it uh, with with stuff four in the back of my mind. I didn't really know how, like, all my run, all my training at 60-second pace had been in the cold and wet and not in a race environment, so I didn't know how I was going to feel. So I just kind of went in and figured, try to beat Nick uh, and try to end, like, my – my big goal was, like, the Michigan State record in the mile was 403 by Grant Fisher. So that was kind of my, my time goal. But I just kind of wanted to get in there and try to beat Nick. So so you, you didn't end up beating Nick, but you did get the national record. So how do you feel about that? Uh, I'll get him next time. Uh, that's all uh, I have. But I know. I'm super, I'm super psyched. Uh, yeah. yeah. That That worked out very well. I mean, walk me walk me through the race. Like, when did you realize you were feeling good? When did you realize that sub four was on the table? So this is like my first mile I've ever run in my life in mile shape. Um, I've never, I didn't run indoors through the winter till junior year. So all my freshman and sophomore miles were like pretty off the couch. So I had no idea really how I would feel going into it. Um, my like my unofficial mile PR, I hurt like really bad because I, I just had I was pacing and I decided to stay in it. So I was expecting it to feel like death, um, if, and that feeling never really came. I just I was waiting for like booty walk and to feel really bad, but with two laps to go, I was like, okay, time to start. Might as well give it a go. Looking at the clock, because I'm feeling pretty fresh. Yeah, I mean you 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 closed in 27:2, I think, which is you know really impressive. And then your dad said when you crossed the finish line, you came to talk to him. You said you felt you had more gears left. I mean, did you think there was more in the tank after that effort? Yeah, I um I don't have enough experience in the miles, so I know exactly how much faster I could have run. Oh, like I just have like very very little experience racing the mile and racing the mile indoors, especially. So I didn't really know like how to pass people and how to navigate the bank and the rail and all that. So it's just like, I was like, Oh crap, there's two laps to go. So I never like fully unleashed. Uh, Cause I also didn't know how I was going to like, if it was going to come back to bite me. Cause I knew that okay, I had a good shot. So I decided to run like I knew how and not get too greedy. So do you think the mile is your best event now, or do you consider yourself more of a two-miler or 5K type? I think the mile is my best event. I always consider myself a cross-country guy until pretty recently, until Ron started working with me. It, it really, I really had no leg speed until I went through puberty. But then as soon as I, I started, I went through puberty, I could all of a sudden could start running 24-200, and I was like, oh, dang. Uh, so the mile really feels the most comfortable to me. 5K still feels a little long. Just I don't. My training age is pretty young, so it just feels long to me. I need a little more time on my feet to get comfortable with that. But uh, I, I consider myself I can do an 800 or I can do a 5K. I, I pride myself in being able to be competitive and across the board. Mm-hmm. So wait, when did you go for puberty? Then did these twenty-four second two hundreds start happening? So there's there's a a time trial uh, that I that I did in the summer, like one of the first ones, Ron, and uh, I ran 
I ran a mile, and then afterwards I had a bet with the sprints coach whether I could break 25. Um, so I just I just did it after this mile, and then I ended up running really fast. And that's kind of when when Ron was like, "Oh, he got it," and I didn't really believe him at the time, but turns out he's right about that kind of stuff. And you mentioned that you know you aren't really familiar with racing the mile law and some of the banks. Because uh, one thing I noticed was. Like with about 250 to go, you took one step inside the the infield. Uh, sorry, inside the rail into the infield. Were you worried about that time? What happened there? Like, were you thinking, "Oh man, I could get DQ'd by for this"? What What were you thinking about when that happened? Uh, I not I did my best not to get flustered and keep moving on. Uh, I figure I, that's not not the time to worry about it. Uh, just one finish the race. Worry about it after, and that's what I did. How did you celebrate the record? Called my mom. Well, first I waited in a drug testing tent to pee for like two hours and hung out there for a while. And then I just hung out with Ronnie Nick and this guy James and my dad and watched the Super Bowl and ate pizza. It was a pretty pretty fun night. Yeah, I'm sure. What kind of pizza did you guys get? Um, cheese and pepperoni. It, it was pretty good. So I know that you were going to NAU in the fall. How did you end up choosing them? Well, my dad spent a lot of time in Flagstaff when he was younger, and he's always talking about it. And um, I thought it'd be really cool to be a part of a good program at first. But then, as I got to know more about Flagstaff and um, like their team culture and their coaches, it just became very appealing to be part of a a little fish in a big pond. And also live in Flagstaff and be under uh, Smith. And the climbing, yeah. Lots of mountains there. Did you consider Michigan at all? And was that was it tough to turn them down? Yeah, I, I did consider them a lot. Um, and I felt there was like a lot of pressure for me to go there. And I was I was really conflicted because I, I wanted to kind of branch out. But I also like was really connected with Coach Sullivan. And we, like, we really hit it off. And also, of course... Ron was like, and Nick and all those guys I run up a lot go there. So it, I, I feel like very involved in not going there. And that was really, really hard to let go. And the phone call to, uh, to Coach Sullivan was like one of the hardest things I've done, telling him mm-hmm. I wasn't able to go. But the decision is made. And so. Well, no, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, NAU is a great program. So I wish you a lot of success out there. And uh, Coach Smith's a great, great coach. Um, when did so your dad said the fall of 2019 that's kind of when you started taking running more seriously why well what it really was was after the after the statement across country i was like holy crap i can win next year and i was thinking like like all the all the spots where i can prove like i didn't run very much over the summer and all that so after that i'm like i'm going to dedicate to running and really really give myself the best chance possible at winning the state title next year. So it, I, it turned out I didn't win, but the the process of like going through that is what kind of led me to, uh, to where I am today. And like, I was thinking about that, that meet like every day in the spring over quarantine, like every day I didn't want to run. I was thinking about that day. Uh, and like every, everything was towards that. So that, that one, moment really helped me grow as a runner where I realized I really had to pour it in to try to win the state meet. So but the summer before, had you, 
like how much running had you been doing that summer? Not much. Well, not much because we I ran like at the beginning of the summer. Then I went to uh, youth climbing nationals, and then a, a two week uh, road trip climbing out west, and then two weeks to uh, Europe to for the youth world championships. So I would say I probably ran average once every three days um but that was mostly at the beginning of the summer so i kind of had to get back into fitness in the fall during that period how long how long would you be climbing for that a lot well a lot of days were traveling but when i was when i was on i was i was hitting it pretty hard uh trying to prepare for the the youth world championships and get get as much fitness as i probably could so i, I was i was doing some sort of climbing workout every single day just trying to get as much endurance and fitness as I could for that competition. And I didn't really yeah. think anything but, past that. Is that. But is that like, is that two hours of climbing a day? Is that five hours of climbing a day? I don't know how much goes into that. Um, I would say about, my sessions are normally about three hours. Do you still climb now? Like, do you, will you continue to climb in the future or are you 100% running now? No, I, I climb at least twice a week. Um, and even if I don't want to, Ron and my dad are like, you got you to gotta keep climbing no matter what. Just to, so it's not all running all the time because they don't want me to specialize because I'm so young. And also they like mm-hmm. the this, this strength. They, I think there's a lot of transfer that I got, which is an advantage, mental and physical. But I'm still mm-hmm. very involved in climbing um, and climb very often. Do you think that will continue once you get to college? I hope so. I, I visited Flagstaff in mid-December. Up with another one of my future teammates, and we, uh, I kind of showed him climbing, and we checked out a bunch of the areas. And the nice thing about Flagstaff is there's climbing five minutes out of town, so you can I can I can ride my bikes from the dorms and be at a climbing area. So I can I can do it in two hours in and out. Um, oh, wow, cool. dorm. So, so did you did you go climbing on your trip then? I did, and I we actually took Nick. Nick's kids climbing too, which is pretty fun. What are the biggest things you've learned training under Ron and and also training with Nick? That's, that's hard. I've, I've like ever, pretty much all my running has uh, come from Ron. But my biggest, the biggest thing we've worked on, and I think this is like Ron's superpower as a coach, is just like forms, form and mechanics. Uh, just like while running so nudy, just learning to run beautifully um, so it kind of sticks for the rest of my life. So we spend, we work out like every workout, every run, um, big, we have a really big emphasis on like, like never taking a bad stride. Like every, every stride you do is perfect. Like if you lose form in a workout, slow down. Uh, it's kind of his philosophy and maintain form. And then I guess another would be he just, wait, he, I take my runs really easy. It's not uncommon to go slower than an eight-minute pace. Just trying to recover as best I can. Um, just kind of jog along. And yeah, not him. I never go under seven. Oh, is is there anyone that you really model your stride on? Who sort of you look at as an example of perfect running form? Well, everybody's different. And early on, I I, was, I would always be trying to run like Nick, but uh, Ron and my dad was explaining to me like. Nick Nick has a different body than me. Uh, so I just, whenever Ron gives me a suggestion, I take it really seriously. I still kind of look at Nick as like a 
a role model, especially for form. But not I'm not copying like exactly what it is, but more like how the last he stays and like his shortening up and that straining and stuff like that. But there's no person like super in particular that I'm like I want to look exactly like them. What like what are your keys when you're running that the that you're noticing that you try to make sure you're doing have a, a perfect stride? I, so everything we work on form wise is just through the arms. So Ron's philosophy is like your arms control your legs. So we put a a really big emphasis on like keeping short, keeping your arms short and fast. So turnover, just moving arms back and forth, not too far forward and not too far back. Did Nick have any advice to you before the race yesterday? No, he he was kind of in the zone. My plan was just to to go after him. So. Uh, he, he looked at he looked out for me like during the warm up and he he's the one who like made this opportunity per uh made this opportunity happen. Uh Andy he he kinda yeah, got me like I didn't I forgot my singlet going to the call room and it was kind of a mess, so he kinda helped me out there because I had no idea what was going on. Did he know that your plan was to beat him y- yesterday? I probably. We we had we had a good workout together, so um I I'm I think I Took a little fear into him, but I'll get next time. Uh, but I think I'm, I'm. It's best, like the best way for me to run fast is just to beat people. That's kind of how I, I think about racing. Is just run, running fast is just racing people, and the time comes. And that's what I've been taught. So. Yeah. So was what about that workout put a little fear into him? Like, was there a specific rep where you beat him or came close? So we don't work out together too often, but we did, we had like overlapping workouts on Wednesday, which worked out really well. But then I got to practice running behind him. Uh, but we, we, we did a 600 at the end and he, got, he wanted me to close, um, like go out pretty slow for 400 and close it really fast. Um, as fast as you could relax and end up closing in 26 lower, 25 high, somewhere in there. I think that was like, oh, uh, we were both uh, here still hanging out a little bit on that end of that workout. And he, he did a longer tempo than me. He did two miles, I did two miles, but um, still. So he was, sorry, he was ahead of you on that rep or just like right behind you on that final rep? We switched about 300 in, but he was behind me for the fast part. Okay. And what was the rest of the workout? So we did a two-mile tempo. Nick did a three-mile tempo, and then it was... 400, 300, 200, 600. Um, that was on Wednesday. Do you do you remember your splits for everything? Yeah. So we were right around 10 flat for the for the tempo. It was 55, 41, 27, 120, 128 closing. 129 closing, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. And what was the rest between the the reps? Uh, four, four, 400 on some, 200 on other. Whatever Ryan yelled at the end of the at the end of the thing, but no longer than a 400 job. A little longer between the tempo and the intervals. It's interesting. I saw a story from September saying that sometimes you and your dad butted heads over your training. You know, being father son. How how so? Like what sort of things would happen? Well, we've never had an issue. Like we. 
We I always had um, climbing training, but mm-hmm. I attribute that mostly to me being really young and really really passionate about climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I'm a little older and more like we've never had a an issue with the running. It's kind of been a a good reset. So it's whatever he says I I do and I work. If I don't think it's gonna work, I like address it and we'll figure something out. But we've never had an issue with the with the running. It's worked out okay. very well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, you have you've had a you have a very bright present and future, I would say. Um, okay, Hobbs. Hey, this was this was awesome. I'm really happy uh, and grateful you took the time to talk to me. Is there anything else I should have asked you about the race, about your training, anything that you know I should have asked that I, I didn't? I'm sure there is, but nothing comes to mind. So, um, yeah, thank you. It was good meeting you. Yeah, obviously, I'm sure. Uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll pass across at some point in the future. But uh, keep on doing what you're doing, man. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember, this week, if you sign up for the Let'sRun.com Supporters Club, 100% of the proceeds go to Jonathan Galt for his 30th birthday, and you will get a free Let'sRun.com or 159.40 shirt included. You get. VIP content, members-only forum. You can save up to 20% on running shoes and a lot more. Check it out, letsrun.com slash subscribe. And don't forget your Drink LMNT sample pack, drinklmnt.com slash letsrun.